Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Off a brand new three-week series today, we're going to focus on the uh, Lord's table, the communion table, and what that has to say to us. And so I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 22, and I'll read verses 14 through 31. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is now the new, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred, on, conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> Our eldest daughter, oldest daughter, is named Abby. She's in law school in San Francisco, and at this stage of her life, she's trying to sort out who God is and where he fits in life. She's especially trying to sort out how to reconcile the existence of a God who supposedly is good with the difficulties and the brokenness of the world. But here's the rather interesting thing about Abby. She's not home very often. But when she is home, she absolutely loves coming to Oak Hills. Not because she likes to listen to me stand and talk. At least I don't think that's the reason. She loves being here because in her words, she experiences something when she comes to Oak Hills. And this experience awakens a desire she doesn't even realize she has until she's here. The experience of being at Oak Hills in some way that is inexplicable woos her. 
it draws her. In a creative and compelling way, it beckons her. Last week, she attended our one service celebration. And when I got home last Sunday afternoon, she enthusiastically said to me, Dad, I just love being at Oak Hills. I love what happens there and the experience that I have when I'm there. And I find this all fascinating given where she is in her life with God and in her faith. She told me how she saw someone walk down one of the aisles heading toward a seat as the service was beginning, and they were walking slowly. They needed some assistance. And she noticed as this person walked down the aisle, several people were calling out to them, calling their name, inviting them to come and sit near where they were. People were actually making room in their row for this person. They were welcoming this person and hoping this person would come and sit near them. Now, I didn't think that this was that big of a deal, but it struck a deep chord in Abby. And she made a rather profound observation. She said, years ago, when many more people in the culture were Christians and many more people went to church, so going to church wasn't that big of a deal, maybe things like welcoming another in this way were not such a big deal because people did that sort of thing more often. And if they didn't do it themselves, they saw that sort of thing happening in the culture more often. But she said in today's divided world, with all the tension and all the anger and all the hatred, that little manifestation of love, of someone being welcomed, someone being loved, room being made for another person, to her was an indicator of a different reality and a different set of ethics by which we live here at Oak Hills. And she was putting her finger on the new ethics of our life together as a Christian church. This isn't unique to Oak Hills necessarily. This certainly isn't ours to hold and hang on to. But again, we can only control and influence what we can. And so what she's putting her finger on is this new ethics that we are called to have in our life together as a Christian church, or if you prefer, the different value system of our life together as Oak Hills Church. And this alternative set of values and ethics is formed in us, I would suggest to you, through the practice of the Lord's table. The values of this table are different than the values we encounter in everyday life. Radically different, upside down different, meaning the things that matter and don't matter are different at the table than they are in the culture. The way things work at the communion table are totally and thoroughly different than the way things work in the culture. When we come to the table and rehearse the grand story of God's redemption and we remember the kingdom ethics that are on display At this table, we are shaped into a peculiar, strange, different kind of people. I know that may sound like, well, I don't want to be strange or peculiar. But we are shaped into a peculiar kind of people, and I would submit to you, a kind of people desperately needed in a fractured and broken world. So as I said, today we're beginning a three-week series called To the Table. 
And the reason why we are starting this new year, 2019, by focusing on the table is because the ethics of the table manifest the reality of the kingdom of God. In other words, we see the kingdom of God in the practice of the table. And we experience the kingdom of God through the practice of the table. The practice of the table forms a church and it shapes a congregation and it establishes a theological basis for a relationship and it establishes a theological basis for how we are to relate to this world and it establishes a theological basis for the mission we have to the world. Let me give you just my own personal perspective on this for just a second. I have been gripped by the centrality and the importance of the communion table in the life of a congregation for about five years now. I mean, it's just something I cannot shake. There's such substance in the ethics of the table. There's such meaning that is already there if we will simply allow it to speak to us and shape us. What we rehearse, what we remember, what we encounter, the story we tell one another is the absolute most profound story in the history of the universe and it shapes us into a people, certainly into individuals, but it shapes us into a people, meaning it shapes us into a certain kind of community, a community of the table. See, the table has been at the center of Christian worship for thousands of years. Why? Because it is a microcosm of the redemption story, and so it shapes and it forms us into people of the kingdom. We could put it this way. The table reminds us of what is actually real in this world. There is genuine substance in the meaning of the table. You know this as well as I do. Sometimes in churches, we certainly do this at Oak Hills, we're trying to infuse meaning into something. We're trying to lift it up and express how important it is. And the beauty of the table is it doesn't need our help. It arises as substantial and as meaningful and as a shaping power because through the table we rehearse and we remember the greatest story in the history of the universe. So this table and what happens here and the story it tells and what it represents and what it symbolizes, what it reminds us of and shapes us into is what makes a church a unique community in a power-hungry and status-driven culture. Let me say it this way. The relevance of a church, a phrase you're probably familiar with, the relevance of a church in a culture, especially these days, is proclaimed and embodied through the inverse ethics, the inverted ethics of the Lord's table. So today we're focusing on the table of community. Next week, the table of reconciliation. And the third week, the table of the kingdom. So as we think about the table of community, three words related to community come to mind. And the first word is identity. In the passage we read in Luke 22, Jesus is at the table of his Last Supper. He's redefining the Jewish Passover in some ways, and he's establishing the practice of the Lord's Supper. His Last Supper was the first, what we call, Lord's Supper, and he's connecting these worlds of Israel and this new world of the church. The disciples, we are told, are reclining at the table, as was the custom of the day. So you would lean back on your left elbow, and you would pick at the food with your 
right hand. And yes, it is true. It was an anti-left-handed world even in the first century. And Jesus says in verse 15, this very powerful phrase. He says, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That's just a fascinating statement from the Son of the living God. I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This is a glimpse into the heart of God in the flesh. Jesus eagerly desires to be at the table eating the Passover with his friends. There's a picture here of a group of friends who've journeyed a long way together, and now they're relaxing around a table. And Jesus says he's waited for this. Indeed, he's longed, he's desired to be at this table with them. One of the things about Jesus that is really easy to overlook is that when he began his ministry, he chose 12 guys to be his friends and learn his ways. And throughout his life, these 12 guys, along with many other women and many other men, became his friends and journeyed with him and learned from him. And now here he is at the end of his life, and Jesus wants to eat his last meal with his good friends. And there's a teaching for us here in Jesus' example. The whole scene pulsates with a communal ethic and with the value of relationship in the Christian journey. The non-negotiable of relationship in the Christian journey. The ethic, we might say, of togetherness. In verse 19, Jesus extends the significance of the Passover meal when, when it says, taking bread, giving thanks, breaking it, and giving it to them. We do this every time we have our communion celebration. Taking bread, giving thanks as we hold it up, breaking it, and offering it to one another. And this fourfold movement of taking and giving and breaking and offering became a symbol of the people of God, gathered in the presence of God, celebrating the love and goodness of God demonstrated in and through the person of Jesus. It became a this-is-who-we-are kind of liturgical expression. We are people of the table. We are people of the bread and cup. We are people of the body and blood of Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.26, For whenever you eat this bread and drink from this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So identity formation happens in the gathering at the table. What do we mean? We mean at the table I'm reminded who I am. And I'm reminded who we are. See, we live in a culture that wants to define us by our roles, our titles, our status, where we are in the pecking order, our income, our career path. We live in a world that forms our identity around what we do or don't do. Who we are, in other words, is a function of how well we perform the various roles we have as a student, for example, or as a parent or as a business executive, and we get evaluated and we get marked up or we get marked down based on how we perform or how we do. And our salary goes up or our salary goes down or our salary goes away based on how well we do or don't do. But when we put our trust in Jesus and we become one of his followers, that whole game changes. And our identity permanently shifts from being about what we do or what we accomplish or how well we perform to being his beloved daughter or son 
and a member of his family called the church. Now, those sound like nice words. And unfortunately, for many people, that's all they are, are nice words. That sounds good. Yeah, that's what we do. That's the church thing. We just, yeah, we now belong to God somehow. Remember what happens when we're baptized. When someone is baptized, we say, I baptize you now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Recognize what is happening in that practice. Something cosmic is happening. Our identity is being reshaped by the power of those creative words. That is not just a fancy formula so that we can get someone into cold water and get them out of there as fast as possible. It's describing our new identity as people of God. We now belong exclusively to Him. And we are in Him. And the table is where we remember this. And we reestablish this identity that is so threatened in this world. We reestablish this identity as his sons and as his daughters and as brothers and sisters in Christ, to use Paul's rich phrase. There's a very important line in our communion liturgy. We will say this together in a moment. We say it every time. Lift up your hearts. And the response, we lift them up to the Lord. In part, this phrase means remember. Remember who you are. Remember, your identity is in Christ. Think of it this way. At the table, the Spirit recalibrates us. Because for a long time, all week for sure, we've been bombarded with messages that tell us this is who you are. And we come to the table and the Spirit recalibrates us, wakes us up, arrests our attention, or in some of our cases, thunks us right on the forehead. And so at the table, I, Mike Lucan, remember that my life is no longer me on my own, doing it on my own, trying to scratch out a life on my own trying to prove something to someone, trying to impress, trying to make a name for myself. My life is no longer just my life, for I am in Christ. My life is no longer just my private concern, for I am your brother. And the table is where I remember who I am, a beloved son of God. And the table is where I remember, I am your brother. And both are integral to who I really am, my identity in Christ. See, at the table, we bring all of our small letter identities. Father, husband, wife, daughter, school teacher, student, Democrat, Republican, suburbanite. White, black, Asian, Indian, rich, poor, single, married, divorced, widowed, old, young. All of these small letter identities are laid down at the table. And we remember our all caps identity. Beloved sons and daughters of God. And... Brothers and sisters in Christ. Second word is subversion. 
and I better hit the accelerator or I'm going to be subverted right off this stage. But anyway, subversion. A smart guy named Alan Street wrote this. If anyone wanted to know what the kingdom of God was like, all they had to do was attend a Christian communal banquet. There they would encounter an alternative way of life where all people, regardless of the status assigned to them by Rome, participated fully as equals in the meal. Around the meal table, believers forged a new social identity as being in Christ. As such, they were now being fashioned into a new body politic, which represented the kingdom of God. If that makes no sense to you, let me try and put that in other words. The kingdom of God is on display through the relational ethics of the communion table. The relational values upheld at the communion table always undercut and push against the culture system that is so often based on power and status. So when people who have no business being together come to the table when unlikes, as one writer puts it, come to the table, we subvert the power systems of the culture and possibly capture the attention of this broken and divided world. Back in our Luke passage, Jesus tells his friends at the table, one of you is going to betray me. So what do they do? They begin to talk amongst themselves and try to figure out who it is. And I don't know if you caught this, So let me read 24 again. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. How perfectly human of them. The topic is, someone's going to betray Jesus. Someone's going to rat him out. But they turn it into a comparison game of, I'm better than you are. I'm ranked number one. See, the ethics of the culture are on display In these disciples at the table, power, comparison, competition, who's better, and winning. And notice what Jesus does. He turns the whole system up on its head. He says, stop. This is exactly what kings do. And people in power and people who like power, they wield their authority and they take pride in their position. They're all about the show. They're all about impressing, all about being in charge and making sure everyone knows it. And then he says in verse 26, but you are not to be like that. The kingdom doesn't work this way. The table manifests the ethics of the kingdom. And in the kingdom, as Jesus says, the greatest should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. And to really get the countercultural vibe in this, we need to hear it in the context of first century Roman culture. Roman men were important. Roman men were powerful. Roman men were in charge. And women and servants and slaves and Jews and children were all second, third, fourth class citizens. Status was everything. Being a man was everything. Pecking order was everything in Roman culture. And the Roman banquet was the epitome of this positioning and power grab and jockey in status. These Roman banquets from which this Lord's Supper is patterned, at these Roman banquets the closer one sat to the host the more prestigious one was and the farther up the pecking order they were moving the more important they were. The goal was to inch closer with each new banquet it was a system then based on reciprocation. I'll invite you to my banquet then you invite me to your banquet the servants served and stayed out of the way 
Women ate at a different table, probably in a, room, a different room altogether. And children were not seen or heard. Roman men were the power brokers. No one else mattered. And at his last supper table, Jesus undercuts and reverses and subverts this ethic of power and status and importance. In John chapter 13 through 17, that whole scene takes place at the table. And all that Jesus says is his discourse or his teaching at the communion table. He is the host of this banquet. Yet in John chapter 13, we read he got up from the table, wrapped a towel around his waist, and washed his disciples' feet. Wait a minute. That's what the host's servants did when the esteemed guests arrived for the banquet. But Jesus, the host, the guest of honor, got up and washed his disciples' dirty feet. And in doing so, he subverted the system of power and of status, and he modeled the ethics of the kingdom for you and for me. The New Testament is full of this phrase, in Christ. It's full of this idea, in Christ there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. The game of thrones is not the way of the table or the way of the kingdom. At the table there's no top down, there's no power over, there's no resume, there's no prestige. Rather it's eyeball to eyeball, it's brother to sister, brother to brother, sister to sister, all rooted in mutual love. The Lord's table, as we often say around here, levels the ground. And all of the prestige and power and reputation and importance and resume that matters in the culture is subverted at the Lord's table. In John chapter 17, still at the Last Supper, still around the table, Jesus prays for his people. He actually prays for all the disciples, us, who will come after the ones he's actually sitting with. And he prays they would be one as he and the Father are one. That they would, in other words, be unified. That his church would be unified. And that their love for one another in their unity would be a sign to the world of the reality of the kingdom. And here's the practical issue for us at Oak Hills. And I want us to really feel this as much as we can. Unity doesn't mean much if we all look the same. Unity doesn't mean much if we all sound the same. Unity doesn't mean much if we're all roughly the same age. Unity doesn't mean much if we make the same amount of money, live in the same kind of neighborhood, vote the same, worship the same, believe all the same things, and have all the same opinions about the various social issues. Unity doesn't mean anything if everything is the same. Because it's not unity then, it's uniformity. And the table is the place where people who are different, unlikes, gather together and surrender their differences and proclaim their unity because of their commitment and loyalty to Jesus Christ. See, at the table we subvert the game of thrones and the systems of power and status, the us versus them games. We subvert the condemnation. We subvert the comparison And we practice a new politic, that is, a new way of being with one another and a new way of relating. So the table shapes our politic. Don't let your mind go down what politics is typically used to mean. Think of politic as our way of being together, our way of relating. The table forms our relational ethics as a Christian community and shatters cultural ethics. So the way we relate to each other, The virtues that characterize our interactions, 
the way we make room for those who are different, the value we place on difference, the dignity we give to those who are different. The table subverts the contentious, argumentative, hierarchical, belligerent, and degrading ethic that is growing so fast in our culture. So really practically for us, and again, this is one of those things that's been rattling in me, the more you think about all this, the more you realize the church, in our case Oak Hills, needs to increasingly be a gathering of those who are different. Unlike each other. The greater the difference, the more powerful the unity and the more obvious the unity cannot be manufactured merely by human ingenuity. You see what I'm saying? The more difference. The more we learn to be with one another in the difference at the table, the more you look at it and go, wait a minute, how does that happen? So for Oak Hills, this means purposefully and intentionally continuing to build a community of unlikes and difference rooted in the subversive ethic of the table. So a church for singles, divorced, widowed, married, a church for the less abled, more abled, a church for women, a church for men, a church for Democrats, a church for Republicans, a church for Asians, blacks, Hispanics, Indians, whites, a church for the poor, a church for the rich, church for Trump fans, church for Trump foes, a church for those who are pro-gun, a church for those who are anti-gun. And here's the big one for us, a church for those who are young and a church for those who are old. Making room for the young. Resisting with every muscle we've got this idea of, well, we don't do it that way. Well, maybe we'll start. Making room for younger leaders, younger voices, younger ideas, younger perspectives. I had to renew my driver's license not too long ago, and they had that thing where it says, color of your hair. And I brooded over this decision. Because my old license said brown. And I'm looking at this and I'm going down the list and I'm going, no, it's not red. It's not yellow. It's not brown anymore. It's not, uh-oh. It's either gray or should we go all the way? White. And I got thinking, we got to get somebody who stands here pretty regularly who doesn't have white hair. Creating space for younger people to speak, to lead, to shape, to influence, and to do it their way as the Spirit leads them. Not that we then go scattering off to some place that's for those of us who are older. No. Because difference, unlikes, gathered at the table under the Lordship of Jesus. But you say, how do all these groups of people get along? How is this even possible? What about all the preferences and how different all the preferences are? Isn't this a recipe for conflict and for tension and for disagreement? Well, what will we do then? Have a service over here to satisfy those of us with white hair and a service over here for those to satisfy those with brown hair? No, what we will do is we will say to one another, let's bring it to the table. Because power stands down at the table. Power gets out of the way at the table. Power 
washes feet at the table. So let's be shaped by the ethics of the table. Let's allow the example of Jesus, the most powerful one, who subverted the power game and subverted the power system. Let's let him shape us and shape our ethics with each other. Third word, quickly, is the word family. Jesus wanted to eat his last meal with his friends because his friends were his family. So the Lord's table is where the family gathers to remember, to fellowship, and to be with one another. Romans 12 and verse 5, it's on the screen. So in Christ we, though many, form one body. And here's the disturbing part of it. And each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. A community of dependence, as one writer puts it. A reminder to the culture that in fact we need each other. Each belongs to all the others. As you just glance around this room, think that phrase. Each belongs to all the others. And then think this phrase. I belong to all the others. Perhaps Paul's favorite way of addressing his readers was brothers and sisters. And his favorite metaphor for the church was family. I have one brother. He's a few years older than I am. He's an exceptional person. We see each other infrequently. uh, But when we do, we usually gather around a table somewhere. It's what you do with family. Jeff is my brother. You know, when I say that, that means something to me. That means something concrete. It means I feel connected to him. Unbreakably connected, inseparably connected to my brother Jeff. And I know he feels the same to me. Things happening in his life affect me. The things I'm dealing with in my life impact him. There's a bond. It's not just a word. There's a bond, a rope of conscription, as one writer describes it. We are responsible for each other, Jeff and I, because we're family. That means we're in it together. No turning back, no bailing out. We're in it together, come what may. And you know what? Family's messy. We just had the holidays. You know this. Family's messy. I mean, did you get this at the Lord's table, at the Last Supper, the First Communion? Uh, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to turn your back on me. Oh, and by the way, Peter, I'm praying for you because I don't want to say who it is, but you're in trouble, buddy. <laughs> Messy. All this beautiful stuff happening in the middle of it. Um, someone's going to betray me. It's really messy. Nothing perfect about it. But we can't escape the obvious. Jesus desired to eat his last meal with his family. It's how the Christian experience happens. It happens with others. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a bond with each other through him. There's a responsibility we have to one another. We are no longer able to just operate in a vacuum. It doesn't work like that. 
When we are baptized into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are baptized into His church. We're no longer, no longer able to say, well, I want to do it this way. Well, that's interesting. That doesn't work for me. This does. That's fascinating. We depend on each other. So, and I'm just going to shout some names out. Elton, you are my brother. That means something. You're part of this family at Oak Hills. It would be nice if there was the Church of Folsom. All these denominations didn't exist. That might not be a bad thing for us to do. Let's pursue unity with every other church in the city of Folsom so there's no longer 84 of them, there's one. And all of that difference comes together at the table. But in the meantime, here's Oak Hills. Elton, you are my brother. You're part of our family at Oak Hills. We are shaped by your presence here. When you show up, we are shaped. And Jesus is more real to me because you're in this room and you're part of this church. Joan, you are my sister. Your soul makes my soul want to be better. You have carried your own personal pain and you carry me in your prayers. And that matters. And I love you. And your presence at Oak Hills makes a difference. Scott, you are my brother. You are a fellow traveler. You care about these things. You're a lover of Jesus. You seek him. And that rubs off and I see it. And it inspires me to want to seek him. One of our dearest sisters... We celebrated her life yesterday, Teresa. And I don't have to tell you, Teresa's influence and impact as one of our sisters will shape us probably forever. There's another Teresa I'm thinking of. It's been a hard road for you. And yet you've sought the king. And you've worked in the process. You are a sister of mine. And it matters that you're here. And we keep praying for God's goodness. Melva, you belong here. You matter here. You have blessed us with your grace and with your words and with your encouragement and with your presence. And we love you. And we care about you. And when you don't show up, we aren't we. Christine, the Lord is your shepherd. And we are your family. And whatever's out there, you have a family that's around you, that will walk with you and seek to embody and incarnate the reality of Jesus with you. Would you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, there are times when it seems we step into things that are beyond us and bigger than us. And I, I, I hope that in these few weeks, we will recognize the magnificence of the table and the way it shapes us. And that your presence will be experienced here in ways we can't predict or manufacture or produce. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.